Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's premier provider of digital audiobooks. Over at Audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a terrific variety of genres. And you can play them on just about any digital listening device on planet Earth, whether it's an iPhone, a Kindle, an Android, whatever you happen to have. And here's a killer deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. Go get yourself a science fiction classic like Brave New World by Aldous Huxley or How About Dune by Frank Herbert or Neuromancer by William Gibson. Any one of these titles can be yours free of charge. And if you do this, if you go get the freebie, it helps the program. I get a few nickels. That's enjoyable. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is an amazing deal. It's available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. This is a literary podcast. This is how you remind yourself to write. Good to be with you again. My guest today is Jim Lynch. He's the author of three critically acclaimed novels, all of which are set in western Washington state. His latest is called Truth Like the Sun. It was the May selection for the TNB Book Club, the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. It is available now from Knopf. And it has been generating a lot of buzz and getting a lot of gushing praise from critics. Very happy to have Jim here on the program, and he and I are going to be talking momentarily. 
Uh, first, I want to plug a book. Uh, it's the latest offering from TNB Books, my publishing imprint, the official imprint of thenervousbreakdown.com. The book is called The Beautiful Anthology. It is edited by Elizabeth Collins. It is a collection of writing centered on beauty, the concept of beauty, what is beauty, and by virtue of that, it also comments on uh, non-beauty, otherwise known as ugliness, perhaps. And it features the work of several notable writers who have been on this show, including Jessica Anya Blau, Greg Oliar, Gina Frangello, Victoria Patterson, and Melissa Phoebos. Uh, the book publishes on June 9th, and it is going to be available wherever books are sold online, in print, in trade paperback, and eventually in ebook format. So please pick up a copy. It helps the cause. I would greatly appreciate it. Uh, what else? Uh, I'm trying to get back into the swing of things writing-wise uh, with my book, the uh, the novel that I've been working on. I've been traveling a lot recently, which uh, sort of interrupted my writing rhythm, and I'm now at the point uh, where the book is pretty bleak, meaning uh, you know, like the story itself is bleak, the narrator is bleak, the circumstances are bleak, and I'm wondering what that means, you know, because the narrator is not necessarily likable. Uh, I've sort of taken out a lot of the likableness and a lot of the humor because I don't feel like it's appropriate for this particular character and uh, this particular story. And, you know, I don't want it to be cute. I don't want it to, uh, I feel like that undercuts things. And uh, in the process of writing, at least where I'm at right now, it has occurred to me that what I'm working on here is dramatic and not necessarily a comedy, or it's way more dramatic than it is comedic. And so unless things change, uh, this main character is not necessarily going to generate warm feelings. Uh, you know, not that he necessarily has to. There are plenty of narrators in literature who don't. But uh, what I'm saying is that it feels a little odd. <clears throat> and I wonder, you know, where all of this bleakness is coming from. You know, I mean, I know it's coming from me, obviously. But I guess what I'm saying is that I'm a little bit surprised by it because I'm not a hugely bleak person. Uh, at least I try not to be. Though I do have a dark sense of humor and kind of a fatalist worldview. So it just feels a little strange not to be writing a likable character, uh, like a, a spoon-worthy character. This is not a character that you want to spoon with. And I find that in literary fiction, uh, even troubled narrators, and, and maybe troubled narrators in particular, for all of their faults, uh, in the end, they're the kind of people you want to spoon with. Like, e even if it's just a pity spoon. But, you know, not this guy. Increasingly so. And so I find myself wondering what that means. Uh, I find myself wondering, will people care about him, even though he's not hugely likable and spoon-worthy? Or will they just find him horrendous and unappealing? It's hard to say. But that's where I'm at, and maybe I'll revise it. I don't know. I'm still in process. And I've been reading, uh, incidentally, I've been reading a lot of Michelle Huelbeck lately, so maybe that's part of the problem. Maybe I'm feeling, uh, as a result, all French and existentialist and bleak. I'm reading uh, The Map and the Territory right now and really liking it. Uh, i got to say, I'm a huge fan of Michel Houellebecq. Uh, I've read all of his books, uh, except for one, I think, and I really like them. And I find them funny in places, uh, but mostly they're bleak and fascinating. And so, you know, maybe that's what I'm going for. Instead of trying to make my character likable uh, and heartwarming and spoonworthy, I am instead going for bleak and fascinating. So, you know, maybe that should be the title of the book. Bleak and Fascinating.
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I um, yeah, grew up near Seattle and uh, went to school at the University of Washington. So, um, and then I bounced around the country to Alaska and back to the East Coast and all before coming back. So I had I had like a dozen years out of here. Okay, so now when you were, you know your books uh, are set in the Pacific Northwest. Did you set out like do you, when you uh, started thinking about writing fiction? Were you trying to address what you felt was like a lack of? Uh, you know, good literature about that region, or is it just what came naturally? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, did you have an agenda uh, to try to create fiction uh, set in that part of uh, the country, um, or did it, is it just what you knew and that's how you wrote and that was that? Well, it's a good question. It's, it's uh, first off, though, I, I wrote about this area in part because I was inspired by uh, Ken Kesey and Tom Robbins when I was in my teens. That, that they wrote about this area that I knew so well, and they wrote about it so powerfully, and, and they seemed to be having so much fun. I just uh, I wanted to do what they did. Um, and so then once I actually finally developed the fiction writing skills, um, by then I, I was a, a, a veteran reporter, and so my nature is, is that I kind of do a mixture of uh, reportage and, and, and imaginative fiction writing in, in my work, and so I like to be in the area that I'm writing about and setting scenes. And so it, it kind of uh, came as a natural uh, that, I, that I would plant my stories here. So, okay. And so when you uh, talk about your reporting background, you know, a little bit, like when, when you got out of school, I guess you were a journalism major? Or? Yeah, well, I was, I was both. I was creative writing and journalism. And, and I um, started off in a tiny Alaskan weekly newspaper and then went back east and worked for a columnist in Washington, D.C. for five years, um, and then worked at a daily newspaper in Virginia, and then bounced back to the uh, west part of the states here and, and worked at uh, Seattle Times and the Portland Oregonian and, and a couple others. So, yeah, I wrote for about 18 years as a reporter that covered uh, the politics and the environment and so on, um, which is... Uh, and, and all the while I was doing all that journalism, though, I was always writing fiction in the morning or on weekends and, and trying to figure out, you know, how to craft short stories and then how to craft novels and just kept banging on the door. Wow. So how long did it take? How long, how long was your apprenticeship on the fiction side? Uh, well, yeah, it was, it was I'd, I'd say about 15 years, which, and, and uh, um, yeah, I, I, was, I was all set to be a uh, published novelist before I turned 30, and it took until I was 42. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so I had two novels, you know, that each of which received, uh, um, you know, a dozen, two dozen rejections each, and um, and and I and I still I still uh, liked them in their own way, but they they were kind of the t- training wheels for learning the craft, um, and so it was that it was that road, you know, and and I'm I'm amazed at how common it is. Um, it it it's the other that that seems kind of rare when somebody just. Uh, um, pulls one out after not studying fiction and, and, and just rolls right into it. No, I was just reading something about that the other day uh, online. It was like a link, and it's kind of an older article, but it was a Malcolm Gladwell thing about late bloomers and 
you know, it seems like when you when you look back at literary history, you always think of these big names, and you and you say to yourself, well, they, uh, you know, must have, uh, you know, begun you know begun to flourish early in their lives. But a lot of them, like Mark Twain, didn't publish uh, Huckleberry Finn until he was forty nine. Which sort of right. it sort of surprised me, you know what I'm saying? It seemed like he did that as a much younger man, but it's not the case. And then uh, Henry Miller was 42 when he published, I believe, his first book, and you know the list goes on. Right. I, I think it's yeah, I think it's guys like uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald writing Great Gatsby when he's 27 that kind of skew the numbers. He was 22, I think. I mean, he was even younger or something. I mean, those I think he was in well, college. I think, yeah, or no, Ga- Gatsby, Par- Gatsby. Okay, yeah, that's right. It was yeah. th- this side of paradise. Yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, that's like that's absurd to me. I think yeah, and Jonathan Saffron Four was nineteen when he was writing Every, Everything Is Illuminated, so uh, right. gives, gives us someone to sort of uh, despise, you know, play, playfully. <laughs> um, so it sounds like you were pretty disciplined though, because you were working full time as a reporter, and then you were, um, you know, were you like kind of like living that. Uh, that life where you were up before the sun working on your fiction every day? Yeah, yeah, I did a lot of that. And it was kind of this, uh, um, you know, dueling, dueling realities because I wanted to be a, a really good journalist and I was learning, learning that craft. But at the same time, I didn't want to kind of lose track of that novel writing dream. And, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to confuse uh, the differences between the, the, the two crafts. And, and so I just wanted to, to keep at it. But, um, but you know, it, it really, a lot of times people talk about the discipline of it, but it always seems to me like it's more like talking about an, uh, an addiction. I, I couldn't resist the idea of trying to write good novels, and so um, motivating myself wasn't the hard part. It was learning the craft that, that took longer than I thought it would. Well, and what were some, I mean, aside from the very obvious stuff, like what were some of the differences that you that you had to kind of parse out between uh, being a good journalist and being a good novelist? Because the the, the two things obviously can inform one another. But, you know, how did you, like, where did you find yourself having to separate? Well, I, just almost in the, in the, in the basics of the approach. In, in journalism, you, you have this need to, to get as much information across as efficiently and, you know, quickly as possible and preferably before it jumps to page, you know, A12. And, and in fiction, uh, you have to have a whole different kind of level of patience. And so I found that it was hard to do journalism and then come home and do fiction because I just couldn't slow down and let, let the writing breathe and let the storytelling breathe. And, and when people pick up fiction, you know, they, they almost kind of want to be uh, hypnotized. They want to be lulled into the story and, and uh, I mean, pulled in, but, but by the same token, they're just they're not in the same kind of hurry. And people are, aren't reading it, you know, um, in the bathroom or on the way to on, on the way you know at, at lunch it's it's speak, uh, speak it's, for it's yourself man <laughs> <laughs> okay i know uh, but i'm just saying you know I, I find myself thinking as you're saying this though is that um i wonder if people are, are, aren't in a hurry it's nice to think that they wouldn't be but it seems like maybe some readers are do you know what i'm saying like it just depends i guess on people's uh tastes and inclinations right. no that that's very true, uh, but I, I guess what I mean is that, that there, there's just such an urgency of relaying information in a hurry um, in journalism, where where you feel like you have to compact everything down and boil it down, and almost like you know into a, a tablet form that people can ingest. Whereas with with fiction, you, you you need to hook them, and they have to be into it. But you you have some space to to you know tell your story and to inform them and and to you know actually provide color. If you provided as little color as you do in journalism to your fiction, it would it would really be a, a 
sparse, um, tedious read, I believe. Yeah, no, because there's been a lot said about how journalism can, you know, the rules of journalism or whatever have informed uh, American fiction. But, you know, it's also worth pointing out that, like, the the novel is uh, a pretty airy form. Like, there is room to kind of stretch your legs, you know, in writing a book, you know. Um, you know, because everybody always talks about making it compact and cutting away the fat and making the prose lean and efficient and all this other stuff. But um, there's also something to be said for sort of stretching out a bit. Right. Well, and, and, and providing a mix, you know, of... of um creating different uh momentum and and uh and and one one thing i find like when i'm trying to explain to to uh new writers and you know and and aspiring writers what it is and how i do it uh, i'll say something like uh uh, you know i'll explain that that they can't have a a boring digression followed by a boring digression you know that they they need the the energy of a of a scene and the energy of the of the reader curiosity about what's going to happen uh, and in that case you can afford to dip back and, and slow down and and tell something else that needs to be planted but you have to be um, you have to be aware structurally of, of when you are allowed to do that um, meaning that, that uh, meaning that you mean like to, to digress into nonfiction or report you know reportage or whatever in the midst of fiction like you have to know you, are you advocating doing that in the midst of a scene where you know you've got narrative momentum uh, right. Yeah. That basically, what I'm just saying is that you you have to be able to be really cognizant of of when you have narrative momentum and when you don't. And when you do have it, you, you're you're afforded more luxury in informing the reader. It doesn't have to be journalistically, but just informing the reader about backstory or whatever else it is that you need you need to get across to them or want to get across to them. And so. Um, you just you just have to pick your spots on that, and in a lot of the uh, early fiction writing that I that I read and that people share with me, just doesn't seem to have a sense as to uh, when they have the reader and when they don't, and what they can do when. Yeah, well, and a lot of that's just instinct, and I think just practice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very true. So now, do you ever think to yourself? Because uh, these are thoughts that I sometimes have in my own writing, that uh, you know the um, marriage between nonfiction and fiction in storytelling or uh, employing digression, um, whether it's really like closely related to what's happening in the narrative or if it sometimes kind of seems like a non sequitur and, and is sort of distantly related. Like, do you ever think of that uh, as a writer, as a reflection of the current age that we live in and the way that we receive information via the Internet and all the rest? Like, do you think that that has any place in fiction or does that inform you at all? Uh, well, inter- interesting question. I'm I'm not sure that I I, I really know the answer to it. Other than that, um, I I, th- I think I do see it more and more in the in the fiction that that there's these non uh, nonfiction threads in fiction, and and it does seem to be um, kind of going with with the flow of of our you know information society and 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 so on. But um, yeah, I I don't know. I don't know. It, it's, it's hard for me to guess because I'm such a, or, or to um, analyze that because I'm such a, a crossbreed myself. Um, you know, I'm, I'm such a mixture of journalism and fiction in, in my work, and, and I even found it as a journalist that I that I was always looking at, at journalism through the through the eye of a of a fiction writer, and and, and I always found it uh, absurd when people would think they were writing great journalism when 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 they would structure it like really bad fiction. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and like as a reader, when you're reading fiction, um, like, I guess like, 
when I look at like liter- literary history and I think of like linear, uh, you know, novels that are sort of plotted in a linear way from 50, 60, 70 years ago, and uh, I imagine, you know, uh, readers from that era reading some of the books that are being published today, they would obviously probably find uh, some of it off-putting or jarring or whatever. And what I find is that when a book is, you know, in a well-crafted way, like you're talking about, uh, when somebody employs those kinds of digressions, I love it. You know, when when, yeah. the, when the digressions happen and when the nonfiction is, is like, artfully interwoven. Uh, and I think it feels familiar or comfortable uh, or stimulating in a way that maybe it just reflects my day-to-day experience. I don't know what it is, but I, I definitely notice it. Yeah, well, I... I um I would agree with you, and you just stated it better than I could, so uh, I'll leave it with that. <laughs> okay, so I, I want to—I do want to discuss a little bit more about uh, your journalism career, like uh, particularly when you say that you uh, covered politics, um, because this seems like such ripe subject matter, uh, an interesting subject matter, if you can stomach it for a fiction writer, you know, to kind of be immersed in that world and to be seeing it up close or, or closer than most people. Uh, like, can you speak about your experiences, like particularly the part uh, that unfolded in uh, Washington, D.C.? Yeah, well, I, I was writing for columnist Jack Anderson, who was uh, kind of the, uh, the celebrated Washington, D.C. muckraker on his, on his last legs when I was working for him. Um, there was like five or six of us who were basically assigned to, <clears throat> excuse me, coming up with the, you know, with the best kind of scandal we could find in, in, in D.C. every week. And... Um, it was it was a it was a fun task. I mean, especially for somebody in his twenties who's trying to understand kind of how power works and 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 how politicians operate. And um, so it was it was kind of a a, a boot camp uh, for understanding all that. And then I and then I bounced out of that situation and and back to the West. And I and I covered politicians out here. And I used to uh, cover uh, Tom Foley when he was the House Speaker, um, and so on. So it it became. Uh, you know, a real part of my understanding of the world, understanding the world through the the eye of a, a journalist who's trying to uh, get at the at the truth of of uh, government and politics, and also just studying politicians so that I I got to understand uh, what sort of animals they are. What sort of animals are they? How does power work? You know, like what did you did you come away with anything concrete? Did you find yourself disillusioned, or were you did you find yourself encouraged? Like what was the you know what was the uh, the after effect of? Well, I, I did. I it, it's it's the sort of thing that that is uh, fascinating and charming in 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 my twenties, and then it started to seem repetitive and discouraging. You know, by the time I entered my thirties, um, in in part just because you, you see how uh, you see how repetitive the problems are, and 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 how. Um, like what's the, what are some uh, of the problems? Like what were some of the repetitions that started to kind of gnaw? You know. Well, just just your basic, uh, uh, you know, song and dance about uh, um, money and politics. The problem, the problem with with people being able to buy elections, and uh, um, and not not finding a way to limit that. And so there's always a crusade to, well, we've got to take money out of politics, and everybody agrees, and then it gets watered down, and and then you know the holes open up wider than ever. Um, so those sorts of things. And and I just found that uh, um, I found that that. That it's that it's sillier than than most people realize to um, to be as partisan as people are when it comes to Republicans and Democrats. I just found it, you know, as a journalist looking at these people, that neither side had cornered the market on on great ideas, and, <laughs> and that there were uh, and that there were you know geniuses and bozos on both sides, 
and 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 um, and I also just found that uh, um, that that the people that 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 really truly had power were, were often the kind of people that rarely ever used it, and that there seemed like there was a certain certain magic in 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 certain people knowing only to use it as, as rarely as possible, and in that way, their the reservoirs of power seemed to grow. And I saw that with uh, uh, Tom Foley. That's kind of the way he operated. He knew, yeah, he knew when to kind of drop the hammer and when to hold. Yeah, and and he and he used it so infrequently that, and used it so effectively when he did that it, that it kind of created this trepidation of of truly challenging him. Yeah. Okay. And then so here's another question. Just like to. Um, you know, this is something that's fascinating to me and that I wonder about when I watch uh, television news, uh, journalism in particular, is it seems very clubby, like, you know, especially the Washington news media. It seems right. like they all know one another. You can totally imagine all these guys kind of like at barbecues in the summer with one another. And it almost seems like a stage show. And it seems to me like from an ethical standpoint that journalists should keep themselves at something of a remove from the people they're covering, particularly if those people are in power. Like, did, did you find, but at the same time, you need access in right. order to cover them. So, like, it seems like it creates this sort of tension uh, that you have to navigate. Like, did you experience that? Well, yes. Yeah. And it's, it's a strange mix because you, you need to keep this professional distance. You don't want, you don't want them to, uh, you know, if you have to write uh, harshly and accurately about them, you don't want them to think that you're a friend or you don't want to delude them into thinking you're, you're their you're their buddy, but at the same time, you need to have friends who give you information. I mean, so you need you need sources, and and you can't really, uh, especially in Washington D.C. I mean, it, it's so based on on who you know and who's willing to share information with you, and then you have to try to confirm it and so on. But um, I I always I always felt most comfortable when I when I was operating more like a lone wolf. And, uh, and, and I also just didn't like a lot of the camaraderie among the media. And you, and you see that in, in state capitals as well, um, where, where the media kind of operates as a, as a pack and sees things the same way. And, and uh, I just like uh, having detachment from that. Yeah, just like, I think that's sort of like the novelist in you, though. I feel like novelists often have that instinct, you know, like yeah, just, yeah, perhaps. want to go hide away and just not deal um, with, the, with the group. Well, yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I like groups, but I, I, I'm not a huge fan of groupthink. Right, 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 right. So, uh, so what left? Uh, what led you out of Washington? Did you finally burn out on it? Uh, my wife wanted to move west. I, I wasn't quite, uh, I wasn't quite completely burnt yet. But basically, I was near uh, the end of the run there with with uh, with the Jack Anderson column. So it was high time to try to go work at daily newspapers and and uh, immerse myself in that. So, and then what about, like you said, you did it for 18 years and, um, you know, so much, so much must have changed in journalism in those 18 years. Well, yeah, I mean, just even the, uh, um, cause, cause when I started out, you know, in, in the, uh, mid late eighties, it, it was still, you know, that, that, that post Watergate buzz and, and, uh, and there was still kind of the, the, the investigative crusade was still kind of going strong in America. And it was, it seemed like an exciting time to be in journalism. And then, and then it's, um, you know, and it just slowly started to wane away from that. And, and, uh, um, and then by the time, you know, by the time I got out, uh, it, it was pretty clear that, uh, uh, you know, Craigslist and other factors were changing the whole uh, economies of newspapers, and newspapers were shrinking and laying off. And uh, 
so I mean, the, yeah, the industry changed pretty dramatically during that time period. So are you optimistic about things like, you know, really like long form investigative journalism being able to thrive in some sort of new form that's internet based and might not, uh, you know, it's just, it seems like that's the big thing for me is like, who's going to fund the kind right. of research and, you know, kind of, uh, person on the ground in you know foreign countries to you know do all this sort of uh nitty-gritty detail work that requires money you know and i can't imagine too many citizen journalists being able to f- foot the bill for that you know however well-intentioned yeah. or, or intelligent right you know? so no I'm, I'm i'm really hopeful on on that front but uh but i'm not all that optimistic at least you know not not in the short term it, it to at least have anything compared to what used to exist i mean there, there used to be you know, large investigative teams on newspapers, and and uh, um, it, it's just it's a, it's a very a very different scene, and, and it seems uh, it seems bizarre how out of step it is with with what I think is is a public you know a, an increasing public appetite for really good uh, information, and it, and it's going to get harder to get it. So okay, so then let's transition. Uh, from journalism to uh, you publishing your first novel, like that, obviously was an exciting time. Like, how did that all go down? Uh, well, it it, uh, it was it was the highest tide, and it was a novel that I set right here in Olympia, um, uh, right out my window where where I where I look out on this bay, and and uh, I um, I basically uh, took six months off from work and and uh, uh, wrote it. During that six months, I wasn't completely finished, but my agent uh, thought she could sell it unfinished. She managed to do that and sold it for enough to quit my journalism job two days later. And so that was, uh, you know, almost eight years ago. Jesus. So that must have. Okay. So did you have, when you quit your job, uh, were you terrified or did you feel like you were entirely ready? Did you have an outline? Like what, what happened? Like how much of it was just a free fall and kind of a leap of faith and how much of it was uh, premeditated and you know, plan. Well, I'd, I'd always told myself if I could get a advance that was big enough to live on for a couple of years, uh, that I, that I would jump on it and get out of journalism and, and try to make it full time as a novelist. And so that's the way it worked out. And so far, I've, I've been able to do it. And it and it actually it didn't it didn't take any uh, huge uh, uh, leap of faith. I mean, it, it was a, the the book went to auction, so it it sold for a good amount of cash. I don't live that expensively. I have a wife who who, you know, likes being frugal. So <laughs> it's, um, it, it fit into our, into our lifestyle and our situation here, uh, rather, rather smoothly. That's great, man. So, okay. So, but when you left the job, uh, and you took six months off, you wrote the entire manuscript or most of the manuscript in that six months? Yeah, about two thirds of the manuscript. And, and I, and I did have, you know, I, I knew where, I knew how it was going to end and I wasn't quite sure how I was going to get there. And I had, um, like three months to, to wrap it up and, and, you know, confirm the, the payment on it and all. And so I, I didn't want to stay working in journalism when I had this, this, you know, project underway and hanging over my head and I wanted to be able to, to get it done. And so I, I kind of finished the novel on, on deadline to some degree, you know, um, very journal, it, very journal, you know, journalistic. Of yeah, you. It was, and, it, and it worked, you know, and it, it all, it all came together, um, came together really well. Well, I'll say. Okay, so did and you said you had an agent, and so you had an agent prior to quitting. Or, I did. Or taking, I, taking your she, break. She was. She was uh, my fourth agent. You know, I'd, I'd gone through agents with my with my prior two novels that didn't sell, and um, 
and and I'd come across her and and she stuck with me uh you know through the ones that didn't sell and and uh until she actually could sell one wow okay and so you and you're still with her yeah absolutely okay so now and then how did you cope with i mean cuz like writing an entire novel is such uh, a difficult thing to do and then you do it and then it doesn't sell and then you do it again and it doesn't sell like how do you deal with that like how what was your method like it seems like you um, are pretty even tempered. Do you ever have any? Yeah. Do you ever like have any meltdowns or anything? <laughs> yeah, I think that. Yeah. I mean, uh, I felt. I felt. Uh, um, yeah. I, I had some meltdowns, but I, I tried to do things to kind of uh, protect myself from from going nuts. And uh, and I just found that I that that I could get frustrated and I could claim I'm through with this and and uh, I'm not going to you know ring myself through this anymore. Um, but then, then I just would suddenly find myself getting excited about the potential of whatever it is I was writing again. And as long as I keep getting excited about the potential, it, 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 it works for me. What I, what I do to, to protect myself, though, is I, I would quit doing things like walking into the grocery store and, and seeing those best-selling books and reading the opening pages and, and, and seeing how lousy they are and, and, and feeling, you know, um, like, like I'd been jipped somehow, um, because none of that none of that is connected none of that makes sense there's no there's no fairness in in publishing necessarily there's there's great stuff that gets published and there's lousy stuff and and vice versa on stuff that doesn't get published at least in my perspective right right so uh okay so then in terms of your uh you know your work uh, ethic and your regimen uh, now that you're full time, like, are you working five days a week, like eight hours a day? Or are you an everyday person? Like, how does it go for you? Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I try to do that, but I, I, um, go through stretches where maybe I work, um, four to five hours a day on, on whatever it is I'm, I'm working on and, and, uh, a couple other hours a day, you know, that maybe I'm just, I'm reading or something. Um, but, but no, I, I kind of tend to write in binges. And, and I don't, I'm not one of those guys that needs a daily word count who needs to write at a certain time. I tend to write in the morning. You know, I, I tend to, um, I tend to play, uh, Miles Davis or Joel, John Coltrane and, and, uh, and try to get on rolls. But if I'm not feeling it or if I'm not, uh, rolling, I don't, uh, I don't try to force it. I try to go exercise or do something else. Yeah. And then what about, you know, you say you don't hold yourself to like a word count or anything, but you do write in binges. Like, do you do you outline prior to getting into a book, or do you work intuitively? I, I kind of I, I kind of do both. I, I I tend to write outlines that I that I end up ignoring, or you know, or or, or I abandon them as, as soon as better ideas come to me. But I, I like I like some sort of structure um, just to give myself the confidence that if that if I execute it like I laid it out, that 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 it'll work. But what I inevitably find is that it's it's just different on the page. Uh, you know, once you're actually writing scenes and chapters, it just, it's so different than your outline as, as to what is feasible, reasonable, and, and fits with organically with what you're doing that, that I end up veering off. But I, but I spend a lot of time after, after I have, especially after I have, you know, a first or a second draft, that's when I spend time kind of looking at the, the architecture of what it is I'm trying to do and, and analyzing whether or not it works. So, and when you say outline, like how robust of an outline are we talking? Is this like a, a couple of pages, or is, are you talking like a fifteen-page, like fully fleshed-out outline? Well, what I no, what, what I tend to do is uh, I tend to 
just jot down tons of ideas and um and so i'll have like a uh a, a notebook notebooks full of ideas you know and then, I'll, and then i'll type up all these ideas and try to organize them and look for common threads and all that and then and then maybe i'll just have a um kind of a, a bare bones outline that given the material that i want to incorporate um you know maybe this order will work give this a try that, that sort of thing but it, but it's not it's not like a highly structured um, one two three four you know A B C D kind of outline. Right. And then how many drafts do you typically go through on a book? Is is there a consistency from book to book, or uh, has it varied? Well, it, it varies, but it, it seems to be uh, fewer. Uh, I, I think I you know was in the um, fifteen to twenty range starting out, and now I feel like I'm more in the five to six range. And 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 I don't know though that it altogether really matters because um, they still take me about the same amount of time. It's just, uh, I, I think I just go through it a little slower and more carefully now. Well, so, and what's the time frame for a book for you? You can get one done binging. Well, I, I mean, I'd like to get them done. I, I'd like, uh, I, I'd like to be more like two years and, I, and I'm more like two to three years usually now. Yeah. That's amazing when you think about it. Cause like, I know authors that are even longer than that, but like, even two years on a project, that's a hell of a long time, you know, to be spending, yeah, sitting it, down day after day. And, and uh, you would, you know, in, in a dream world, and this does sometimes happen, but it would be so nice to just be able to, to do a book in six months, you know. Well, that, yeah, that's why it, 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 it blows my mind to read like Steinbeck did Grapes of Wrath in six months, you know, and he almost had a physical breakdown, but supposedly that's, that's the time frame for that monster. And, uh, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, I don't find any way to actually rush it because it doesn't seem to me like it doesn't seem to me like it's the the problem is not the you know getting all the sentences down and, and all the reworking it's marinating with the story idea long enough for it to actually kind of mature and and um, and and come about and it's kind of a weird dynamic to explain but but I find that I just need to sit with a story a while and that if I just rush it out. Um, it's it's not going to be as strong or well thought through. Yeah, no, it's like it's a it's a, I've talked about this before on this show. Like that's the weird tension that you have to kind of resolve between uh, this impatience to get the thing done and uh, you know the good sense to actually uh, let the thing develop. You know, like you don't want to rush it. And then there's also the uh, the aspect uh, you know of enjoyment. Like the the real fun of writing, if you love writing so much, is the actual you know. Uh, act of creation and yet we're in such a hurry to get it over with you know? <laughs> like, right it's so strange right, exactly. all you want to do is just get this thing out of you and get it done and then once it's done you tend to look back on it with all this nostalgia like the process that you couldn't wait to finish you know yeah but but there there is something i mean i and i do still kind of hold on to those uh those writing highs when when, when it's actually uh, when it when it actually feels exhilarating and i have those you know 10 to 15 page days where it all feels good and i just don't want it to end and and it, you know and i'll start early in the morning with coffee and end with you know multiple beers late into the into the night and it and it's just yeah it feels like um how do i create more of these days but they only seem to come after a long period of time of marinating in the in the ideas of it and all and when i'm when i'm talking to the people that are you know exploring the ideas of writing novels like and they're always saying, well, should I write on it every day? And I said, just at least think about it every day so that you can get some mental momentum. And, and that's, so that's kind of what, where I'm at, is just trying to 
keep keep this thing in motion in my head. Well, yeah, no, I remember I took in college, I took a, a writing workshop with John Patrick Shanley, the playwright, and he was telling us that, uh, he said something that I've always remembered, where he's like, you know, uh, even if you're just sitting there <laughs> uh, in front of your computer, or in front of your typewriter, or in front of your notepad, or whatever it is, and you're not writing, uh, but you sit there for three hours with, like, the intention of doing so, that's still writing. Like, that still counts, you know? Uh, and, yeah, I like that. Yeah, it doesn't usually happen that way. You usually get some words down if you sit there for three hours, but um, it's just the act of, of kind of uh, getting into the chair and trying, you know, and if you do that every day and you do it for three years, you're going to come up with something, I would hope. I don't know why, but it reminds me of uh, something my editor just said to me, which is, when it was coming to tax time and I was talking to him about all, all of my expenses and he says, you're a novelist, your whole life is, is, is expenses. You know I mean, you, you, your, your business is, is everything you do every, every step of the day. So, you know, you should be able to deduct everything. Yeah. Right. You got to get creative with that stuff, you know? Uh, yeah. Um, so, okay. So let's talk a little bit about research. Like, you know, obviously with a journalistic, uh, background, um, you know, it seems like you'd be inclined to do research and you would have that skill set and that kind of leaning. Um, and when you talk about, you know, the, uh, your entire life, you know, being your work, like, do you feel like you have enough material? It's like that, you know, the old Flannery O'Connor line about anybody who's lived to the age of 18 has enough material to work with to write books for the rest of their life or, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but, yeah. um, you know, there's also a part of me because I think that there's, there's truth in that, you know, but I also feel like, um, uh, the strong urge to go out and do stuff. Not, not that I really have done much lately because, you know, uh, life has sort of taken over, but like, do you have that kind of like adventure gene where you would like to get out? I mean, it, it sounds like you do if you went up to Alaska right out of school and took a job. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely do. And, and I, and that's one of the things that I, I like about coming at fiction from, um, you know, a journalistic skill set in that, in that I, I, I'm not at all intimidated about writing about things I don't know now because I know I can figure them out. I know that I can interview the you know the experts and try to get to the essence or core of something. And so that that to me is part of the the excitement of of uh, of trying to use my journalistic skills to mix it into fiction. And and where I just find that the uh, uh, the line gets uh, the line you know, gets to instincts is, is when you're, when you're trying to figure out how much of what you research and how much of what you gather should actually show up in the fiction. And so there's, there's that line of not wanting it to suddenly feel like, um, uh, you know, I, I wrote my first novel was, was, was this kid who was making all these discoveries that he shouldn't be making on, on the tidal flats around here. And so there was this marine biology dynamic to it, but I didn't want it to read like a marine biology text, even though I had learned so much about marine biology, I could go on and on. And so there's that balance um, that that I that I seek, you know. Well, and there's yeah, it's the ratio too. You're doing so much more research than actually shows up on the page, you know. <laughs> like you kind of right. Um, you know, it's like a it's like a nine to one ratio or something. It seems like when you get down to it, because you're compressing um, and making sure you don't you know beat people over the head with it. Well, and, and I just like, but I just like to uh, gather as much material as I can have. You know, I mean. It's like making a, a, a great soup or something. You, you just want to kind of have lots of options on ingredients. And, and so I tend to just gather, 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 and then and look at the pile of what I've, uh, you know, uh, gathered and, and see what kind of, uh, uh, you know, how that affects the, 
the premise and storyline and characters and so on. Well, yeah, and you must have some really like happy accidents doing that too. Like if you do your your uh, your due diligence on the on the research side of it, I bet you kind of stumble into things that you weren't looking for in the first place that wind up being really useful. Yeah, well, definitely. So now with uh, with regard to um, Truth Like the Sun, like can you talk a little bit about the research that you did for it? Like uh, you know, it seems like you kind of dove into uh, you know the history of Seattle and the World's Fair and everything. Yeah, well, I wanted to try to write a novel that was, uh, you know, got to the essence of the Seattle that, that I know, my version of Seattle. And, and so I, I looked at a couple different time frames. The 1962 World's Fair that kind of put Seattle on the map, and 2001 when the uh, dot-com crash hit and, and hit in Seattle uh, harder than anywhere. And so I wanted to, I wanted to build a novel that, that could bridge those two time periods. And so uh, for the most part, I mean, the, the most research involved, of course, going back and, and understanding the 1962 World's Fair and just, you know, pouring through all the, the newspapers for the, the six months that it went on and, you know, reading the memoirs of the people that ran the fair and watching the, 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 the crazy primitive home movies that people had at the fair. Where, where did you get where, access? I mean, obviously you were at some library. Like, where was all this stuff housed? Uh, well, in a variety of different libraries and museums throughout the Seattle area. Okay. And, uh, and and I just and I just found that the more I more I went through all this stuff, the more I kind of was able to reimagine the fair, and um, and it, you know it was it was exhilarating. I mean, I really I enjoyed trying to to make 1962 and the fair and and that point in time in uh, in America, you know, right on right on the uh, the brink of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and um, and just putting all these ingredients into play. Yeah, did you did you by any chance read uh, Eric Larson's Devil in the White City? I don't know if you've ever. I read actually it. haven't, but uh, but yeah, but I I I know the the premise and I I know the story. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's just I mean he just he he also you know there was his story was about uh, or it's actually nonfiction and it's about uh, right. the World's Fair in Chicago, but um, similar research processes I would imagine at least to some extent. Right, in, in his case, he, he's going to be you know four times as extensive because he, he's writing nonfiction. I. I I was basically doing research to in- inspire my imagination, so it was probably a, uh, a thinner slice. Right, and like, whatever happened to the World's Fair? Like, it used to be such a big deal. Like you're saying, it like put Seattle on the map. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know the history of it all that well, but it, 1962, I think there was another one in New York maybe a few years later, but it seems like it sort of petered out not long after that, right? Right. They, they, um, they tended to be uh, financial nightmares for the, for the cities that put them on, and... Uh, and, and once uh, you know the, once once uh, people started traveling all around the world and television became more popular and all, I, I think that they became kind of obsolete as far as you used to be able to go to a world's fair and see things you couldn't see anywhere else, and, and uh, that that faded. Now, I, now you just go to YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh man. Um, okay, and so uh, like in, in with regard to like the two thousand and one. Uh, dot com bust like obviously that was a you know memories were fresher um, but in terms of the research and and what you learned uh, you know digging into that like what was the uh, what was the outcome there well I'd, I'd been covering Seattle for the um, Portland Oregonian uh, during that time frame so I I mean I, I kind of experienced it and learned it on the ground as a reporter when I was going through so I, I didn't when it was actually happening so I didn't need to do all that much in in terms of uh, um, research and recreating it, other than other than to kind of look for 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 the 
anecdotes that that best represented it, and and um, you know, showing some of the uh, um, kind of the, the the craziness of of what was going on then, as far as companies that where people were making millions of dollars in stock options um, and and having no products and so on. You know, the the groceries, uh, whatever it was called, the, there was a home grocer. That, that crashed in such Gro- spectacular yeah gro- grocery.com or groceries.com yeah right um, you know and, and there was just there was such a it, there was such a flurry of, of activity there um, that that it uh, it was just an interesting time in Seattle in part to me because it's a boom and bust city and in this and in this boom um, people that that weren't that weren't you know making a million dollars a year on stock options were feeling like they must be stupid. It was just strange. <laughs> no, that's the that's the economy that I came out of college into. Uh, really, stumbled into it, and with no you know with no leaning toward technology and, and no real awareness. Like I feel like I've always been sort of kind of like a you know bumbling knave or whatever. And um, you know I had friends though that went out to San Francisco and went out you know went out to Seattle and took these jobs in the technology world and. You know, it was it was a relatively brief period of time when you look back on it. Um, you know, especially the really heated part of it, where the bubble kind of blew up and then burst. But you know, for those two years, um, you know, as a young person, I just thought this is how it goes. You know, like, oh, so this is what happens when you get out of school. But at right. the, but at the same time, I was like, you know, you know, I'm not, I, you know, I wasn't. I was working at a little film company in Boulder, in Colorado, and there were no stock options being handed out. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't like that. Yeah. So. Uh, but I had a buddy who walked into a job at Yahoo, like first job he took, and you know made a made a good amount of money there. Just sort of lucky, you know. Yeah, I, I had um, you know um, Microsoft friends and and friends in other companies that were uh, trying to figure out what to do with the rest of their lives now that they'd retired in their mid thirties with too much money. You know? so I guess it's a nice problem to have, but like you know, I, I actually. Uh, did some journal. I was doing some journalism work myself, and I was doing a, a profiles of young people who had kind of ridden that wave. Uh, and what was fascinating is that, you know, I talked to, to to one guy who had lost like a ton of money because he didn't vest his shares uh, when he could have at least uh, at least part of them. And then I talked to another guy who lost a fraction of that, and he was much more psychologically damaged. You know, it's just it's so interesting to see how people react to that situation right. and it's and, and also the, like the loss of it but um did you ever find that people you knew who were suddenly in their mid-30s and and had enough money to live for the rest of their lives were like uh, more unhappy than they were previously or is that just like what we want to tell ourselves <laughs> i i don't know they, they didn't look all that happy they look kind of scared they like like there's this big road out in front and they didn't really know you know where to go or how to fill their time um but I, I haven't heard from them recently, so I don't. I don't know. Maybe they. <laughs> You're like they. They live in. Uh, they live in Paris now, so I'm not really they, sure. Maybe they. Or maybe they. Maybe they blew all the cash and they're happy again. Who knows? Yeah. No. I mean, it's. It, you know, it's easy to say, uh, but I always. You know, it's. It's easy to be just kind of sit there and be like, God, I would have no problem figuring out what to do. Um, but maybe when you're actually in that situation, it's. It's a different story. I don't know. Yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully, we'll find out someday. <laughs> Um, so, uh, let's, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, your youth. And I tend to ask this question of writers that I have on the show, uh, about their history as writers and how they kind of came into it. And, uh, the place that I'd like to start is just by asking, uh, you know, how old you were when you knew that you were going to be a writer, that you wanted to be a writer. Like when, when did that fire get lit? 
I think it was probably uh, you know, about 16, um, and it was uh, after reading Tom Robbins' Another Roadside Attraction. I, I think I think right then I, I was I was just dazzled by the notion that you could actually write things like this, and that and that you you know you, the, there didn't have to be any rules. And, and uh, so to me, it looked like um, it just a real appealing outlaw way to live. And and it also uh, it also it it was kind of the default for me because it was what came easiest in school, what came um, most naturally for me. So were you like what kind of kid were you? Were you like a troublemaker, or it's like you know you say you were uh, the outlaw existence appealed to you? Like, well, like- well no, I was I wasn't I, I wasn't that uh, um, you know out of bounds, but I, I was. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I was kind of, uh, what do you call it, um, not counterculture, but a nonconformist to, to some degree, and, and, you know, particularly identified with, with uh, rebel music from the, uh, the 60s and into the 70s, and, and um, wasn't enamored with school and, and liked, uh, it was much more drawn to the uh, partying world. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't a... Uh, I wasn't an upstanding young student. Right, right. And so, like, well, and you, you know, you bring up Tom Robbins, and, like, he's really interesting. Uh, and his appeal is really interesting to me because uh, I remember being a freshman in college, and everybody I knew was in love with his books. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's, yeah. a, there's an age range. Not to say that you can't enjoy his books when you're older, um, but it just has – it's kind of like Kurt Vonnegut. Like, he has this sort exactly. of unbelievable appeal to people – who are just coming into their uh, adulthood, or what? I don't know. I don't know how you you know phrase it, but eighteen, nineteen years old seems to be the sweet spot. And uh, I remember reading an interview with Kurt Vonnegut uh, a while back, and he was talking about his approach to fiction, and uh, you know, in relationship to that kind of appeal and why it happened that way. And he's like, you know, I, I want to try to get to people uh, before they become generals and CEOs, and like. You know, when their minds are still kind of uh, open, which made some sense to me. And it seems like Tom Robbins um, is doing something similar, you know. Well, yeah, I, th- I think that I think you put it really well, uh, or uh, Kurt did. But um, I, I I think that there, there's something uh, about I think there's something really interesting in, in what what age you are when when books hit you because I, I put together this this bookcase up in my living room here where I've got like 75 of my uh, of my books that have inspired me more than any other books over time and I, they're not the books that I consider necessarily the best books but they're the books that just jolted me and and a lot of it has to do with what age I was at when I ran into them and and, and the bookcase you know about half of it is is are books that I read between the ages of you know say 17 and 23 and and that's just the Kind of the most powerful, impressionable age when you're trying to figure out what exactly um, you know life is and what you're going to do with it. Yeah, are you sitting in front of that shelf right now? Yeah, I am. Well, can you read some some spines just so we can get a sense of uh, you know the the 17 year old? Uh, yeah, well, okay. Uh, Robert Penn Warren, All the King's Men, William Styron, Sophie Choice, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Raymond Chandler, uh, The Color Purple, uh, Fountainhead. Where the Red Fern Grows, that goes back way farther. Yeah, that was um, that was a huge book for me. Old Dan and Little Ann. I'm still crushed. Yeah, by, you know? <laughs> so that, that was the uh, that was the last book that was read aloud to me. Our third grade teacher read it aloud, and then uh, and then blew our minds by um, 
having a surprise that when she finished the book, we walked down the hall and Wilson Rawls himself, you know, the tall strapping man from the Ozarks was there to explain how he wrote Where the Red Fern Grows. No shit. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. I was, you know, I, I thought, you know what I thought you were going to say? I thought you were going to say we walked down the hall and there were like two like red bone coon hounds just waiting. <laughs> <laughs> that probably would have impressed uh, the kids more, but, uh, but he he was he was phenomenal because he he talked with such a a thick accent we we thought like he was speaking a foreign language and uh, and he um, and he explained how he didn't even understand basic grammar and structure and that he basically wrote uh, you know where the reference grows is one paragraph <laughs> there weren't even indents um, so yeah that was kind of my introduction to to uh, to an author and and he was like a you know. Uh, a magician to me because that book was so powerful in our in my mind and and there he was well yeah no no wonder you wound up being a nonconformist. you're like look this guy broke every rule wrote an entire book in one paragraph you know in the ozarks right. <laughs> like it's a classic so but you know it almost sounds like maybe like it almost sounds like maybe he came out of like the it's uh, i don't know I mean, the oral tradition might not be the right way of putting it but do you know what i'm saying like he's just a yeah, sto- he's just he's just a storyteller you know right um i I think that's. I think that. I think you hit it right there. And I was thinking about that the other night. That I think there's there's kind of two kinds of writers, and one of them, you know, is definitely kind of the the oral storytelling type that you just can't put down, you know. And and, and Ireland seems to kick out so many of those. It seems to be, you know, almost their their brand of writer. Or Mark Twain. These people that were as good verbally as they were on the page. And then there's all kinds of mumblers like myself and and far better ones that uh you know that that are. Basically, the, if they have any, uh, you know, powers or magic to when it comes to writing, it, you know, it has to come through the fingers. Yeah. I don't know. It's just something I've noticed. Yeah. Well, and, and so, like, when we talk about your particular uh, brand of fiction and this sort of amalgam that you've created between uh, fiction and nonfiction, and then you talk about books that really jolted you, um, is there a book that you can point to on that shelf that you feel like is representative of that sort of style or that pointed you strongly in the direction that you ultimately wound up going in your own work? Well, um, I don't actually, you know, it, it, it seems to me that, that, uh, that, that I study the hell out of books and I reread the ones that, that, that blow me away. Um, and, and I used to do that more because the, like I said, there, it was happening more often, but I, I think that just the, 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 uh, uh, you know the the drudgery and and you know beauty of writing endlessly as many drafts of as many different things I have for better or worse I my style and everything is is, is my own it feels like my own and and so I don't see like a book that points in the direction of of what I try to do if that's what you mean but I do see a book a, a recent one you know um, in that's that's also in here uh, let the great world spin by Colin McCann that that I just thought was a, a that, that's the most recent book that I've read that that jolted me in similar fashion to the to these ones back then. So it suits my taste today just about as well as anything. Yeah, no, and it's like to go back a little bit. What you say about timing, it is amazing how critical timing is to uh, how a book hits you. You know, like I can because like you can take one of those books that just completely rocked your world when you were seventeen, and you can pick it up today and have trouble getting through it. Um, or maybe not exactly. that, maybe not that extreme, but I actually have that experience. Like there are books that I love and, and my love for them is like not diminished because I remember what they meant to me when I was a, a younger person. But like nowadays, I, I don't think I could get through some of them just because it's a different time and, you know, things have changed in me or whatever. 
Well, and, and your whole, you know, tastes and styles and sensibilities as to as to what you want fiction to do, you know, evolves, and it, it, it's like, um, you know, not all of the music I listened to uh, 30 years ago sounds good to me now. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, uh, when you read, like your reading tastes, do you have um, a strong preference toward fiction in terms of what you read for pleasure, or is it a mixture between fiction and non? I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much uh, bent on fiction, except, except when I'm doing research for the novels that I'm working on. And I, I try to read, um, and I know I don't know if other novelists do this, but I, I tend to, I tend to try to read novels that'll help me with ideas for what I'm working on, and I try to read nonfiction that'll help me with ideas for what I'm working on. I just, I like to just continually feed my brain. So I, I'm looking to write a novel next that that is about this. Uh, this family on Puget Sound that's that's obsessed with sailing, and so uh, you know I've been reading uh, I've been reading all these nonfiction books about these guys that you know were the first to sail around the world solo, and I've been reading about novels you know that that have big sprawling families in them, and um, just kind of you know stirring it all up. Sure, and and you also you have a sailboat, don't you? You're kind of a sailor yourself, right? Yeah, I I do. Uh, yeah, and I I'm the son of a sailor, and so uh, sailing's been you know a long-standing part of my life, and, and I enjoy it a great deal. Could you say? Could you? I mean, how long of a distance could you sail safely? <laughs> like, I mean, it, well, I'm not a I'm not a uh, I'm, I haven't crossed oceans, and I I just like um, uh, playing around in in this big inland sea, you know, up up in Puget Sound here, and then up north into Canada on the east side of vancouver island there's just endless amounts of islands and uh channels and so on to play in well now and you said you're the son of a sailor so your dad was a sailor yeah he he uh well he he moved out to seattle in the in the 50s basically because uh you know he he was under the impression it was the boating capital of the world and so he came out here primarily to sail and then talked uh my mother into coming out here and and all of our uh you know, most all of my my childhood weekends were spent sailing. That's kind of what we did. Oh, that's cool. So, where did they come from? They came from Pittsburgh. Oh, okay, okay. So that's a that's a ways. <laughs> yeah, especially in those days. Sure, sure. Well, so uh, what about like? And you don't strike me as somebody who has a problem with this, but I, I feel like I should ask it just because it's such a common thing for writers. Like, do you have any uh, struggles with the internet in terms of distractions or? Do you watch TV? Like, do you have any problem? Like, are you a writer who has any problems uh, staying away from that stuff or limiting your intake, or do you have a problem? Well, yeah, I mean, discipline? I, 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 don't, I probably have as many obsessive compulsive disorders as the next guy, but I, I don't. Uh, I, I'm not a. Uh, I'm not much of a sucker for for the internet. I kind of go in and, and deal with it surgically because uh, I, I just. Um, I, I don't like how much time it can gobble. And so I, I try to go, when I need information, I go and do it. And I keep the, I, I write, um, I write where I, uh, ideally where I don't have access to the internet. So yeah, so where, I, do you, where do you work? Well, in, in uh, various rooms of my house, depending on the temperature outside. And I, I had an office downtown Olympia for a while, which, which was nice. It kind of, it was, it felt, uh, it felt good to, go to work in a little place that feels like a little private eye office except that nobody visits right but uh <laughs> it's a very lonely yeah. office <laughs> yeah um but no that's cool and then, so you don't have wireless internet you just like have a plug-in and then that's it maybe that's the solution. yeah I, I i just i try to keep it as simple as possible and I, and I also try to you know turn off my phone for large stretches um 
so I, it, that that's a part of my life that that takes you know discipline more so than the than the writing you know just trying to keep the distractions to a minimum yeah and then so are you going out on tour for this book you're going to head out into the country at all yeah, well, it primarily, uh, you know, since it's set in Seattle, I'm, I'm going to be in Washington and Oregon here for uh, April and May. Um, but, but yeah, uh, plenty of stops. Oh, all right. Well, uh, I appreciate you taking the time, and congratulations on the book. And, uh, you know, we'll be pulling for it. It's, uh, you know, and, it, and it's exciting to be featuring it in the TMB Book Club. Well, hey, thanks a lot. I've enjoyed talking to you. All right, Jim, take it easy. You too. All right, guys, there you go. That's Jim Lynch. Be sure to check out Truth Like the Sun. It is out there in hardcover right now from Knopf. And if you want, you can find him on the web at jimlynchbooks.com. You can also track him down on the Facebook. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It's on the Twitter at otherpeoplepod. I'm on Twitter at Brad Listy. And if you want to email me uh, and tell me something, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And don't forget to check out The Nervous Breakdown, my online culture magazine and literary community, over at thenervousbreakdown.com. You can also follow it on the Twitter, at TNB Tweets, or check it out on Facebook. And if you want to do something to help support the cause, to help support uh, this program and uh, TNB and literature in general, please consider going over and joining the TNB Book Club. Uh, for only nine ninety nine a month, you get a brand new book delivered to your door every 30 days. Better yet, uh, I talk with all of the uh, TNB Book Club authors, like Jim Lynch, right here on this show, so you can read the book and then hear the conversation, or uh, hear the conversation and, th- and then read the book, whatever your druthers. Uh, the club is curated by me and by Jonathan Evison, and best of all, at nine ninety nine a month, that's less than the cost of a book. It's a tremendous value situation. So to sign up, just go over to thenervousbreakdown.com and click on Book Club in the menu bar, and uh, away you go. It's very simple. Uh, okay, so I think that's pretty much it. Uh, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to keep working uh, on my own book, and I'm going to keep uh, refining the language and the voice and the character in an effort to uh, hopefully strike some sort of interesting balance between uh, the fascinating and the bleak, uh, the darkly funny and the captivating. Uh, or does captivating uh, mean the same thing as fascinating? I'm not entirely sure. Please remember that Newt Hampson, Nobel Prize winner in literature, once referred to Adolf Hitler as, quote, a fatherly type, end quote. And uh, also please remember that Kafka's bosses at uh, the insurance company where he worked said that he po- uh, possessed, quote, superb administrative talent, end quote. Uh, okay, I'll be back again soon with another conversation with another person who writes things compulsively. Thank you for listening, folks. I appreciate it. It is almost June. I think I hear my daughter crying. It is almost summertime here in the Northern Hemisphere. The earth is in bloom. You can smell the flowers. You can smell trash and fossil fuel, which is fascinating and bleak and so on. You get the idea. (laughs) 